Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I'm joined by Isabella Bonello. She is the head baker, founder, owner of Three Bites Bakery here in Columbus, Ohio. We don't have a whole lot of bakeries here in Columbus. Uh, pretty much Three Bites. There's a handful of pop-ups um, like Petchka doing kind of in-home stuff. And then you have Pistachio Vera, Fox in the Snow are kind of the two big ones. And then some businesses that have like a bakery cafe component but aren't really standalone bakeries. Woodhouse Vegan does some stuff too as well with park service. But it's not as much as like Cincinnati where we've had a bunch of bakers on uh, from, you know, the Queen City and everything. Uh, they have a very thriving baking community where Columbus has some bakeries, but it's kind of spread out. It's just not kind of at that same saturation level uh, in the marketplace, despite Columbus being a bigger city overall uh, in terms of population and size and metro area and all that stuff. So We've had Three Bites Bakery, some of their stuff before. Um, they come highly recommended from previous guests too as well, but their stuff is delicious. It's also really cheap. I still feel that it's really cheap despite their slight price increase that she did. And we get into that on this episode during the course of this interview. Um, we talk about just kind of all the challenges of running a bakery with inflation, price increases, how you kind of go about that with your customer base and everything, finding the location, the maintenance that goes into it. Um, your surroundings, you know, what the future kind of holds when you're looking at a location and it's in an area that's eventually going to be targeted for gentrification and um, the city's going to do a bunch of rehab on the area and redevelopment and everything too as well. So you can kind of see all that coming, but they're located just north of the East Market. Sometimes they pop up there at the East Market and then you could also find them at different farmers markets too as well. So make sure to follow them on Instagram. Issa's personal account is Issa Bonello doesn't really post too much uh, about the bakery it's just kind of more of a personal thing but to follow the bakery it's at three bites bakery and they put out different stuff that they have in the case um, she does wedding cakes and stuff too as well so if you're in the market for a cake you can reach out for pricing and details too and then um, you know they're always updating locations and different events uh, this do one-off dinner events too so they got always got a whole bunch of stuff going on so make sure to follow them on instagram you can follow us too as well at Spoon Mob. Make sure to check out our website, spoonmob.com. Different profiles of all our guests up there, food photos, wine photos, links to all the episodes, updates from since the last time that they've been on. All that stuff's there. There's a contact portal too as well. You can write in questions, comments, feedback, or go ahead and shoot us an email or DM. Our email is spoonmob at yahoo.com and you can DM us on Instagram too if, if you prefer. And then make sure to follow subscribe to the podcast whatever platform that you use most everybody uses apple and spotify but google amazon stitcher all the little android apps run all that stuff you can find us there just either search spoon mob in whatever app that you use and it'll come up or yeah, we usually post a link with every new episode that comes out that you can kind of click through or uh, use the link in our instagram bio that'll get you to there as well to go through a link tree and then you can use your preferred platform and everything and just hit the little follow triangle checkmark button. And then all the new episodes will drop straight into your feed. So releasing on Thursdays, 1 a.m. is usually the target. Sometimes it's a little delay here or there, but usually Thursdays, 1 a.m. is when they drop into all the podcast apps and then it'll hit YouTube a week later. So if YouTube's your preferred method of consuming podcasts, then it's just running a week behind just because of a different metric system. That's all. So Without any further delays, though, here is my conversation with Isabella Bonello, the founder, owner, head baker over at Three Bites Bakery here in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks again for taking some time out of your morning. Come on the podcast here. I know morning hours are pretty 
busy for you uh, with running a bakery and everything. Carrie Young, Raymond Kim, Jake Clevin kind of recommended having you on. Uh, we've had Three Bites Bakery. We've had some stuff from you guys. It's all delicious. You guys are kind of constantly changing over uh, what you guys are doing, what you have in the case or what's available that day. I mean, there's a set menu and everything, but I want to get to what you got going on now. And you just kind of came across your one year in that physical space too as well. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody. How did you kind of first get involved with cooking and baking? Was that family was doing it and you kind of fell into it? Was it something, you know, in high school you got interested? Like how did all that happen? So in terms of just like spending time in the kitchen, I definitely grew up with my dad cooking. You know, I was very fortunate that we always had like home cooked meals. So it was just something that I was always around. There's like videos of me when I'm like, I think must have been like three or four years old and I'm helping my dad like trim the ends off of green beans. I was just always in the kitchen. And then in high school, you know, I'd have weekly chores and that would consist of making tomato sauce, very Italian, or, <laughs> you know, soups and stuff like that. So I didn't get heavily into baking probably until, I mean, I guess I would bake on my own over the summers, you know, when I wouldn't be at summer camp in like middle school, high school, I'd just kind of take a recipe and try it out. So it's always something that I loved. It was always a dream of mine to have like a little coffee shop bakery that would also kind of be like that would showcase local artists and all that stuff. But it was just something that I thought I had to do after having like a separate career, I guess. And then, yeah, I mean, I went to Ohio State. I graduated and with nothing to do with hospitality, of course, just started working in various restaurants and kitchens and started baking professionally probably how many years ago now? Eight years, nine years that I have been doing it like professionally in a kitchen, just solely baking. You went to Ohio State, you got a degree, I think, in psychology, right? So what were you intending to go down the career path of? Did you want to be like a therapist or was it behavioral psychology? Like, where were you kind of headed before you transitioned over to baking and opened your own bakery? I really wanted to work with people who were struggling with addiction or like veterans, like very underserved communities, I would say those particular groups of people. Some things happened that made me realize that I probably wasn't emotionally equipped for work like that. I get very attached, let's just say. I kind of pivoted and after I graduated with my undergrad, I was actually taking some other like general ed courses to try to get into an occupational therapy program. So that was what I thought I was gonna be doing. You know, I, I, I really wanted to go to OSU. I had some friends in the OT program there. I thought it was like another way that I could help people. And then I just had a conversation with somebody where they asked me if I could do anything, what would it be? And I was like, oh, you know, I know that I want to go into OT, but I think ideally in a perfect world, like I would just open a little shop. And then they asked me like, well, then why are you wasting your time doing something else? And it was just the way that they had phrased it was so um, direct, I guess. <laughs> And like, nobody had put it so black and white for me before of like, well, if that's what you want to do, like, why are you doing this other thing? Like, who says you need to have a career? Like, why do you want to wait until you're 40 to do this or whatever? And it was just kind of like this wake up call, I guess. And I finished out the semester, I finished my classes. And then I just was like, okay, I guess we're doing this and kind of threw myself into the industry. So where did you go from there then? Because I think at some point you wind up at North Star, right? Was that the first place that you wound up or was there places in between? That was the first place I ended up. I started out in the front of house there. 
I started out at the Easton location. So they had like a almost a full service bar there. I would say like half service bar, right? So I started out there, I bartend, um, worked the register or whatever. And then I wanted to be in the kitchen. I didn't want to be in the front anymore. I definitely am more comfortable in the kitchen. And so then I was a line cook. And then I worked on the line there. And then I actually went to Italy to teach English for a couple months. And then when I came back, I was at the short north location. So how did you wind up going to Italy to teach English? It was just something I wanted to do. I was there for a couple months. I was with the host family. I mean, my dad's family's from Italy. I wanted to just go and be able to go see them more often. I'd go like take the train up north to visit them like almost every weekend. I just wanted to have that experience, you know, of like, I think I taught like first grade. I, I didn't really teach. I was more of an assistant from like first grade through eighth grade for a couple months, just stayed there. And then when I came back, just because I like moved and other things happened. So I transferred to the short. How did you find out like that they needed a teacher or a teaching assistant? Was that like family? It was just like, hey, you know, you could do this if you wanted to, you know, or whatever. Or how did that like materialize? So I just started doing my own research of like what programs could I do where I didn't need to be like TOEFL cer certified. Um, like what programs could I do where essentially I can just go and assist? I didn't want to be like a full-blown teacher. I didn't want to write like less. I just wanted to go help essentially. Um, I wanted to practice my own Italian. Can't even remember how I found the program now that I think it was so long ago. I was like four, it was like nine years ago. So I can't really remember how I found it, but I found it. <laughs> yeah, it was just like in this little port town um, called Porto San Giorgio. And I lived with a host family from Naples and would walk to the schools every day. It was great. You know, you're doing the teaching thing. You're at North Star in the front. Then you kind of transition the kitchen, wind up downtown at their short north location. But did you have a singular moment that you knew you wanted to be in the back of, you know, the restaurant's back house instead of front? Did you have anything like that? Or was it just, yeah, I don't really like this. Let me do something else. The other aspect of it kind of thing. I was honestly very, very burnt out of interacting with people face to face. I am social to some extent, I guess, but I'm more comfortable head down working, I would say. I get really, really drained with a lot of personal interactions. And I think I remember specifically saying to one of, like when I sat down with somebody to be like, I'd like to move to the kitchen. I just said like, I can't be at the register. Like, I feel like I'm banging my head against a wall. So that was, and they were like, okay, we'll put you, <laughs> we'll put you on the hearth and get you trained. So, yeah, I mean, and it was really cool to be like once I transferred to the short north, I kind of got trained on like a couple other stations. And what I really enjoyed was having the freedom where I could start a shift in the beginning of my day and be in the front of house. And then if the line needed support, I could hop back there. Like I really liked having the flexibility to work almost every position in the restaurant. I really, really enjoy that. I like to be able to be flexible in that way. So when you're in like the kitchen and on the line, did you ever consider pursuing just becoming a chef instead of a baker? Yeah, I definitely thought about that. I would have to say the lifestyle of a line cook wasn't great for me. Like the super late nights, the really high stress. I just got to a point where I was like, I need something different. So that's when I started at Pistachio Vera working there. Yeah, so you wind up working at, I think, their North Market location when they had that, right? I was at both. There was probably back then, you know, I think this is like 2014, there's limited probably bakeries at that time. So was that kind of on the short list? You were like, all right, well, I'd rather do kind of the baking side, you know, pastry side of stuff 
where can I go? And it's like, well, I got three options. Like that one seems like the best. It was, it was very limited options. And I really felt like at least at Pistachio Vera, I'd get a more like classical technical training. And that's really what I wanted was that like, you know, back then when I was working at PV, like Fox in the Snow wasn't even, you know what I mean? Like it was a while ago that I was there. Since you were at the North Market location, because I think that was their first one before they opened the German village and then they wound up shutting it down. But were you making everything on site in the North Market location or was it at a different like commissary kitchen and then kind of bring it to the North Market? Because the North Market stalls aren't super big. Yeah. So actually it's the other way around. The German village one was open first and then the North Market opened after because we produced everything in the German village location and then we'd cart it over to North Market. So North Market, we would like proof everything, bake everything off fresh in the morning and we would finish like tarts and stuff like that. But all of the actual production happened, the German village location. Is there a big difference between the items that can be cooked at both locations, right? Is there a big difference between doing that task in a food hall stall versus in your full kitchen? Oh yeah. I mean, space alone, there were just things that we couldn't do at the North Mar You know, we can't laminate dough there. We can't really do a lot. I mean, that was a very, very small space. It really was just meant to like finish stuff, put stuff out. It was not a production space whatsoever. At any point, did you think of going to baking school or culinary school to get more training? Or was that something that you didn't really want to do? Oh, yeah. I mean, I loved the idea of even like going to Europe, you know, to do a program or whatever. But the reality is those things are really expensive. You know, I know a lot of people who went to culinary school and I worked alongside people, you know, on the line in kitchens who went to culinary school and then were like, oh, this is not for, you know, once you get like the real life experience. Um, so I just found that I was able to gain a lot of knowledge from actually just doing the work and learning from people around me who were more talented than I was and just paying attention. I do think there is something to be said for culinary school, for pastry school, for those programs. I think you learn a lot. You get all the basics. You know, you get trained really well, but I really do believe that you can learn just as much from just getting like the real life experience and learning from other people around you. So if someone in your bakery now asked you what your opinion would be on their goal was to open their own bakery one day, what would you kind of tell them to do? What would, advice would you give them? I mean, listen, if you have the money, go to school. A lot of culinary schools, they'll also give you business classes, um, which I never had. I, I learn a lot just from like flying by the seat of my pants. And that's not necessarily the best way to do things. <laughs> you know, I've had to learn some really tough lessons. But, you know, if you have the money and you have the support and that's something you want to do, I would never discourage somebody from doing it. You can learn a lot. I'm not saying that one way is better than the other. I just don't think people have to go to culinary school, if that makes sense. I know people who regret it and I know people who are really happy that they went. So it really is such an individual decision. So how'd you wind up at Fox in the Snow? Cause you were at Pistachio Vera for probably about a year or so, and then you wind up going over to Fox in the Snow. So how did that materialize for you? I must've been a PV for definitely for over a year. I ended up there because one of my really good friends who I worked with at North Star was like one of their very first employees. And I just wanted experience in a different type of baking. So that's how I ended up there was they were looking for people. I started out there part-time. I think I was also bartending at the time too. I always had like multiple jobs. I ended up at Fox because of uh, my friend, Eric Renner. We just wanted to work together again. 
Now, when you're at Fox in the Snow, I think, like you mentioned, you start out kind of part-time and you're kind of a baker and eventually, I believe, an assistant manager there too, right? By the time they opened up German Village, yeah. Having kind of dual roles like that, what's the biggest challenge in that you're on the management side of things, but you're also kind of doing some of the baking too as well? Like, how do you kind of navigate going back and forth? It could be every 30 minutes, you could be like switching tasks kind of thing. The managers all always did be, you know, we always kind of did a little bit of everything. So for me, there wasn't that much of a difference. It was just more of like, now you have to be like the liaison between the employees and the management employees and the owners, which I struggled with sometimes. My personality can be a little bit difficult for people. I'm very direct. I don't really hold back. And that has always been a challenge for me in every workplace. I think I can be very blunt and lack some tact, not mean in any way. It's just like, I just say what I think and that I had to learn was not how everybody um, likes to communicate or likes to receive criticism. So having to adjust to people based on their communication styles is something that I've had to learn. I don't think I was very good at it then. And I think I'm learning it a little bit now. So between those two kind of staple places we have here in Columbus, you know, Fox in the Snow and Pistachio Vero, what was the biggest difference between working at both those places? Or was there anything? Was it just kind of, eh, it's just a different kind of bakery, different setup? The things that we produced were completely different. I wouldn't even say that one was more like laid back than the other. You know, they were completely different environments, but that has so much to do with the people that you work with. In terms of like production load and stuff like that, thing is to a PV that they had already been established for so long by the time that I was there. Fox was very much like when I got hired is around the time that they really started to grow very, very fast. You know, I was there before German Village opened for like at least a year. It was very different in that capacity, right? Like there were a lot of growing pains and there was a lot of doing stuff to sell and learning every day as we went and very chaotic. So I guess in that way, it was very different. Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of hard to, they were just two different workplaces and they each had their benefits and their challenges, you know? Yeah. And I got to imagine like Fox and Snow when they first start out, it's kind of a, you don't know what you don't know situation, you know, even just from business operations standpoint, it's like, oh, well, you know, we didn't need that many bags of flour or we didn't order enough, like all that stuff you're kind of figuring out as you go. And they really blew up so fast that it was like every weekend we just couldn't make enough. You know, it was crazy. It was a really, really invaluable learning experience for me because to be with a company, watching them grow so fast and watch like just having to pivot all the time, you know, it's you really learn. For me, I learned a lot there. So at those two places, they're already open when you join. So they already have set items that they like to make set recipes. How do people approach that in the fact that, you know, your dream was to open your own bakery. So you want to develop your own recipes, but you also can't really develop anything there because then that business would own the recipe. You know, that's kind of the thing, unless they're like cool with like, you know, yeah, that's fine. You could take it with you, but it's usually few and far between places that do that. Even though croissants, there's probably some differentiation between recipes, but for the most part, how you make a croissant, Generically, like 90% of it's how you make a croissant. So how do you kind of try and figure out what you want to make for your bakery once you get to that point and develop that stuff, but you're also executing everybody else's recipes pretty much all the time? So, I mean, at that point, 
the idea of like opening a bakery was like a very far in the future dream. Like I learned a lot of, in terms of just basic techniques at both Fox in the Snow and Pistachio Vera, I always wanted to play with flavors in a different way, you know, than either of those places did. Really, truthfully, the experimentation didn't happen until, start really happening until, it's not like I was developing recipes for either of those places, you know. Um, I would maybe have some input. I'd give an opinion on like some R&D, you know, if I like something or not. And really, some of my favorite items that were at Fox didn't last on the menu. So I was always like, dang, like, I love these things. I love these flavors, but I guess they're not selling or they just didn't want them, which is, you know, that's fine. It's just a different flavor profile, a different um, demographic of customers. The demands were different. You know, the experimentation really started to happen once I left Fox in the Snow and I started working at L Brands in a in like a corporate bakery setting where, you know, I had to make a cupcake every week. I had to make a brownie every week, but I could kind of have a little bit of freedom. But I was really so bored there. That's kind of when Three Bites was born, was out of my boredom and wanting to try new things. So I would like look up different recipes from different countries and different whatever. Like, you know, every once in a while they'd have events there where I would have to make something from a different country. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then I'd look a little bit more into it. Yeah, Three Bites just that's when three bites really happened. That's when more experimentation really happened. That's when I realized I actually had some freedom, I guess. Because in every other job, I didn't really have freedom. I just made what was on the prep list. <laughs> Learning to like grow that like side of my brain, I, I guess, and like trusting myself. And that like took some time. And even now I'm still working. Why do you want to work at L Brands in that setting? The only other person I think that we've had on Aaron Klaus, I believe, worked at L Brains too, as similar, I think, capacity and used like a pastry chef for corporate events and meetings. So why did you want to work there and, and what were you kind of doing? Was it making baked goods for like their big conferences and stuff like that? Or I wanted to work there because I needed a break from the schedule that I had. I wanted health insurance. I wanted paid time off. I wanted weekends off. Like I needed a break from nowhere did I work that I got paid time off. You know what I mean? Like I never got sick time. I never got, I wanted to just have that experience for a little bit, I guess. And then I very quickly realized that it wasn't for me, that I would take the lack of PTO and health insurance. I got paid better there than anywhere else I'd been paid before. You know, it was like, it was a pay increase. It was benefits. It was all these things. And I just felt like, okay, I'm 29. I'd kind of like to experience that. <laughs> That's how, and I would bake, um, yeah, I did all their corporate events and the weekly bake-offs, but it was mostly like cookies and brownies and cupcakes and Rice Krispie treats. And, you know, sometimes I'd try to play with something new and then nobody would buy it because it's a cafeteria, you know what I mean? So I was happy to be there in the sense that I was living pretty comfortably, but creatively I was pretty unsatisfied. Is that because they pretty much are like, hey, we have these executives coming through we need croissants muffins whatever and then you're also doing the stuff for the cafeteria which is like you said probably just cookies brownies and stuff so there's no real avenue to like oh, i'm gonna try with this and see like what happens like maybe you get a shot here or there but like you said it, it nobody's ever like interested in it kind of, yeah pretty much it's like the stuff that always did well there was like cupcake like box cupcakes box brownies rice crispy treats we'd make the same cookies every week you know, we didn't really make anything from scratch. I think one time I tried to do like a crepe station and that didn't go very well. 
It was like anytime I tried to do anything like kind of creative, it just didn't sell, you know, and even the croissants, they weren't, I wasn't hand laminating croissants or we didn't have a sheeter there. Like for, I mean, it's just a corporate bakery, you know, there's no shame in that whatsoever. Like that's when I really started to learn about cake decorating. And I learned a lot from um, my mentor there, Tiffany. And, you know, every once in a while I would make stuff. It's not like I never made stuff from scratch. I would make stuff from scratch, but Again, those things weren't really things that really sold. People just want like a cookies and cream brownie there. You're at L Brands, you know, you're you're kind of stuck creatively, but you have the corporate benefit structure, which kind of gives you a breath to kind of figure some stuff out. How did you come up for the idea for Three Bites Bakery? Was it just a day that you were like, all right, like in six months, I'm going to open my own spot? Or how did you kind of navigate and, and focus and narrow in on all right, now is the time I want to do my own bakery, do my own thing. Uh, the option was never really mine because I got laid off because of COVID. You know, I got my LLC in 2019, almost exactly a year before COVID. And throughout that year, I would every weekend, I would be like, hey, I'm going to have these two or three items to sell. Actually, where Chapman's is, there used to be like a co-working space. It used to be a co-working space. So I would go there on Sundays and meet people who wanted to pick pastry up. That was it. It was like posted on my Instagram of like, hey, this week I have this and this, you know, if you want it, place an order. We have a limited amount, whatever. And it, you know, it starts out just friends, family, people like that. And then slowly word got out, more people started following me. And that was just what I did for a year. You know, I would do the occasional market over at like 700 Brighton. Before it was like the art walk or whatever. I wasn't even doing German village makers markets. Then. It was like very sporadic because I was still working a full-time job. So it was just whatever I had the energy for pretty much. I think I did a couple pop-ups at like, not Chrome Edge, the place across the foreigner Westrich. You know, it was just whenever I could find the time and, you know, I didn't have the money to like do big markets or like farmer's markets or anything like that. So it was a it was a really small operation. It wasn't until COVID happened that I was kind of forced to see what I could do with it. Do you think your timeline still would have been the same if COVID didn't happen and you didn't get laid off? Not at all. It would have taken longer for you to get to this point? Mm -hmm. Because I was comfortable, you know, it in order to be like, yeah, sure, I'll open my own brick and mortar. You kind of have to be a, an absolute lunatic or have no other option. You know, it's not like I had money just laying around you know, I didn't have the confidence, you know, I didn't have the time to really go out every weekend and set up a tent and see who would come buy my stuff. I didn't have the time to do all this prep for like makers markets and probably just would have been a very slow growth. So when you start doing kind of the weekend pastry boxes and stuff, that's all coming out of your own home, right? Your home kitchen? Well, right. You know, when we thought COVID was just like, what, two weeks or something like that? It kind of started out, I was doing monthly boxes and I was, you know, I was still getting unemployment. I was getting the relief checks, whatever. So I did monthly boxes and I would donate a portion of it to various causes that I thought that were important to me. So every month I'd come up with a new menu with six items. It was like 20 bucks, 25 bucks, something like that. And I would, you could pick up from my, I'd have a set day where it's like, okay, you can pick up from my home between this time and then I can do deliveries after that. Um, so I did that for many months. I don't even, I'm trying to remember like when that switched over. 
It must have been in the fall or winter because that's when I moved into 700 Brighton on Fridays and Saturdays as like a little pop-up where Bad Tempered is now. So when you move into the pop-up, are you still doing, everything is still being made out of your own home kitchen? Everything was made out of my home until I opened the shop. Is the biggest challenge with that just lack of space? Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, a tiny home of it. So you have to really like kind of be super organized in the fact like, yes, this can go in the oven now. And now I need to prep this because as soon as that comes out, this has to go in. It takes so much longer. I mean, time and space out of your home is crazy. It's insane. You know, I'm very lucky that my boyfriend also works in kitchens and he just happens to be incredibly talented at organizing spaces to make them work efficiently. He was the one that was like, okay, let's put a metro rack here. Let's get a bigger table. Let's get these bit." Like he really pushed me to like make my home kitchen as efficient as possible. But you know, it consumed, there's no separation whatsoever of like work life and home life. It was like every room in my house had something to do with the business. And like, I had three chest freezers in my living room. I had storage everywhere. It was crazy. I mean, I'm really happy that I don't exist in that space anymore. (laughs) Baking off for a market where you can put two half sheets in your oven and it's not a convection oven and it's crazy. And then you can only do so much. It was just an idea. Like I, I thought that it would be a good interim. I was good friends with Sarah from Aloha Ina at the time and she had an extra truck. And so we were kind of playing with the idea of, okay, what if I bought this truck and turn it into a pastry truck? And I could find a kitchen to work out of. I looked at working out of like 1400 food labs, stuff like that. But it was kind of like, okay, I don't have the money for a brick and mortar. What if I did this? But really it's so much upfront investment for a truck with getting coolers and equipment and all that stuff and inspections. And then, you know, equipment never lasts as long on on a truck because you're like bouncing it all around. (laughs) And then I don't even remember when we decided like not to do it, but I focused on it for a few months, wrote out a business plan, kind of came up with a budget. We planned it all out, you know, of what equipment we would need. But then it just, I was like, you know what? I might as well just do a build out. Like if I'm going to do this, I should just do a build out. How hard was it for you to find the physical space that you were going to move into that you did move into? Well, I, I mean, I was looking pretty passively for a while. And then the people that I worked with, they're like, hey, this spot opened. And I was hesitant about it at first because of the neighborhood. I didn't know if people would want to come. But really the space, like, it was the perfect size. It's right by where I live. It was within budget, you know. The reality is it's like I couldn't afford to go to move into like Clintonville or some of these other like, quote unquote, more desirable neighborhoods. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll just make this work. When you move in there, I think it's, well, you guys opened like March, 2022 was the. Yeah. It's been, we celebrated like a year. So how was the first year? Like looking back on it. Oh man. So the first year of being open was really, really hard. I did not think we were going to survive the summer. That's when the dinner series that I did started. We just couldn't get people in the door. And I think especially the summer was so hard I've noticed that Columbus has become so oversaturated with like weekend markets that it really pulled people away from brick and mortars. And then even if I would do a market, I spoke to a lot of my friends who were on the market scene. And because there were so many markets, every market didn't do as well. Like nobody was doing as well as the year before because there was, there's just so many, there's too many. And there's only so many people in the city. 
And then that also takes away from people who want to come into our shop on the weekends. So the summer was really hard. I felt like I couldn't get ahead. I couldn't get my feet under me. I was still paying off my contractor. I was having issues with staffing. It was just, it was hard doesn't even begin to describe it. The fact we made it a year, I almost can't believe. And then the year before that with the build out was also just its own living nightmare. (laughs) If I'm going to be completely honest, it was not fun. Pretty much everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. Again, I will say I learned a lot and it has allowed me to talk to other bakers and give them a very balanced, like, you need to do this. You need to make sure you do this. Like kind of not acting as like a mentor, but just being like, hey, these are red flags. This is how you have to do it. There's no way getting around it. So I really have a wealth of knowledge at this point. Um, If I were to ever want to do another build out, I think it would be easier because I know the exact way not to do things. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just been a really hard, like three years. There's that like saying that cliche that, you know, the first year of a a restaurant or, you know, kind of a food business is the toughest and you just kind of want to break even if possible. Would you agree with that? I mean, yeah, you just survival is like the biggest thing, you know, and especially being a bakery, it's not like our profit margins are very big. There's a cap to what you can charge on baked goods. Uh, I just raised my prices a few months ago because we got to the point where, I mean, with inflation, we had to, it wasn't an option anymore, but you can't, for me, at least I can't charge $8 for my pastries. You know what I mean? I mean, I could, nobody would buy them. It's this fine line of like, how do you charge what your product is worth, what your time is worth, what your labor is worth, what my employees labor is worth, while also being accessible to people and bringing people in and making people want to spend money. It's very hard. I will say now that we've hit a year, things are a little bit more consistent. I absolutely wish they were like twice as busy, but we're doing better now than we were six months ago. That's great. I just have to be grateful for that. I would actually probably argue that your prices are are still insanely affordable, but I'm probably in the outlying um, side of that because, you know, as I've mentioned previously to people, we do have the Columbus uh, subreddit and most of those people, whenever there's a food thing, they just complain about the price, uh, whether it's a burger or whatever. There's like, there's this weird mentality of, I don't even know what to attribute it to anymore. Like I, I used to always say like, oh, just people don't understand food costs, but I don't know if that's the thing. There's just this, they refuse to go over a certain dollar amount for that item, whatever it is. Like I would say like a hamburger, like it was, as soon as you get into double digits, people don't want to do it. McDonald's has ruined all of us. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a definitely a big attributor with the dollar menu and all that stuff in, in that specific kind of genre for baked items, baked goods. I don't know what that is because- some bakeries, some people that charge what I would call an exorbitant amount uh, for their croissant, specifically their online croissant, which I won't name who they are. But when I found out kind of what their prices moved to, and this was probably last year, I was shocked. I was like, it's not worth that. It's a lot of money. Like, this isn't Paris. Like, let's calm down. Like, maybe, maybe you can't take trips as much as you do and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't know how you communicate to the public, to you know your customers. Like, yes, this is what the price is, but it, it's it's just weird. It's it's like 
inflation is a big thing and it's affecting everybody, but people don't think it should affect the items that they're going to buy. It's very strange. And it's like, you know, I have a hard time too. Sometimes I'm hard on myself. Like you can go to Pistachio Vera and buy a plain croissant for three seventy five, and it's bigger. And, you know, my Nutella Cornetti are four fifty and I a piece, but I have to remind myself, like they have economy of scale. They're bigger than I am. They can produce many more, like much more. When we say small batch, we are very small batch, you know, and I only have like one full-time employee, two part-time. And it's like, we're all touching everything. You know, we all have a hand in creating these items. And I think what people don't understand, what I've had to learn about, like when I'm pricing my stuff, it's like, I have 10 years of over 10 years of experience at this point that has gone into my decision of how I'm going to make this item and why I make it and the technique behind it. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It does get frustrating when people are like, oh, this is kind of expensive and kind of like the, I guess, sassy side of me wants to be like, well, you go home and do it. You think this cake is too expensive? You go home, create a recipe, you figure out how you want to do it. You do the R&D, you make it, you bake it, you buy all the ingredients. Then you have to learn how to trim a cake, ice a cake. Like you do it and then tell me it's not worth what I'm charging. And I think people don't think of it that way of like, if they were to do it themselves, how much money would it cost just for the bare bones ingredients? You're honestly probably not even going to execute it well the first time you do it. Like when it comes to something like baking, like making a brioche or making croissant dough or making a cake batter, you know, like that all takes time to develop and people, I mean, that is also for savory kitchens too, but I mean, I can only speak for myself. It's like, what you're paying for when you're coming to me and to other bakeries or whatever, like you're paying for the experience, you're paying because you know the product is going to be good and you're paying for the fact that you don't have to do it yourself because you don't want to. And so I think that there is a lot of lost perceived value, I guess, to all that stuff that goes on before you even get your croissant or your ube pan de sal or your 10-inch cake. <laughs> And I think maybe it's people who've never worked in the industry before are probably the ones who complain about it the most. I don't know where it comes from. Even if you used cake mix from the store, that's a buck. Eggs, let's say somehow you were able to find them on the cheap, cheapest you can find right now is probably like four bucks for a dozen. You're at five. A thing of already made frosting is probably a buck or two. So let's call that two bucks. So that's seven plus throw in another buck for vegetable oil, like a thing of that. So that's eight bucks there. And then to make a cake out of that cake mix, it takes an hour to bake and then probably going to take you another 30 minutes to an hour for cleanup frosting. So let's call that two hours. Even at minimum wage at eight bucks an hour, you're at what? 16, you're at 24 bucks, 23, 24 bucks to make that cake yourself. And it's just a sheet cake. It's just generic. There's it's chocolate, vanilla, whatever. Or you can spend five or six bucks on a slice of cake that somebody else made that's going to be better than anything that you made. And that's also going to be a different flavor besides chocolate, vanilla, or you know your standard options that you find at a, at a grocery store. So just people don't do the math, I guess. I mean, honestly, it's like, if we want to talk about just like my pricing personally, when I was just doing markets and everything, everything was $3. Because my over, I didn't have to pay rent. I didn't have... I wasn't really paying myself. You know what I mean? Like I didn't have all the, I didn't, I didn't have to pay anybody else. It was just me. 
So I could charge $3 because it was just money going in towards the build out because I was still getting unemployment, whatever. I had to increase everything by a dollar when I opened just because I had to pay rent, I had to pay employees, I had to pay whatever. You know, boxes cost money. Everything costs money. Nothing is free. So, you know, I raised it to $4. And then when I just raised it to $4.50, it was because I was talking to my supplier and everything across the board went up an average of 18%. The 50% increase doesn't even cover that 18% but it helps to mitigate the cost a little bit. Um, We did increase the sizes of some of our items a little bit just to kind of help, I guess, soften the blow of a 50 cent increase. Most people are very understanding. I would say the majority of people do say we're reasonably priced and a majority of people will say that I could even charge $5 an item. But for me, I also have to be aware of the neighborhood that I'm in and I want to be accessible and affordable for people who live in the neighborhood. I don't want to isolate them because I'm in their neighborhood. You know what I mean? So I don't have the privilege of charging $8 for an item. I just don't. And that's okay with me. The more people that I can get into the shop to try my stuff that find that they really find something that they love, like that's what makes me happy. It's a very interesting conversation that I think needs to be had more. Um, You know, again, I'm also not, I'm selling baked goods and coffee, right? It's not like at a sit down restaurant where you can charge $30 for a plate. Again, profit margins are what they are for a bakery. They're never going to be super high. Could you go to another place and get a croissant that's bigger for cheaper? Yeah, you can, but they're also not doing what I do. Yeah, I don't know. There's advantages and disadvantages. (laughs) You mentioned earlier, you know, small batch versus economies of scale and, and production. Can you simplify that for people in the fact that the amount that you guys are able to make versus Whoever you want to use as an example, Pistachio Vera, Fox in the Snow, but compare the two. Like, can you equate that in numbers? Like the amount that you guys make, like you can make 50 croissants versus them making 200 or, or is that possible to kind of... I don't know if I can put numbers to it. I mean, we can only produce so much because we only have so much space. You know, we can only really fill up like one sheet tray at a time of items because we only have one double door freezer. One sheet tray of items as opposed to an entire walk-in where you can have a whole speed rack dedicated to like two or three pastries. It's very different. And because they sell more, because they're bigger companies, they can price things lower. I actually don't know what their prices are right off the top of my head because I haven't been to Fox in the Snow in a long time. And I do order pistachio vera. I do get maybe like once every other week because I love to eat a croissant that I didn't have to make. So their prices are cheaper, but they can produce so much more that they can afford to charge less. So in terms of like a speed rack, so how many trays can you fit on a speed rack on average? How many speed racks can you fit in a walk-in, do you think? I actually don't know. I should probably know that. You guys don't have a walk-in, right? So you guys are doing, you know, single tray versus somebody who could do 12 trays at a time. You have the production facility scale, like one-tenth of like your competitors? Maybe even less than a tenth. A fifth of what they can produce, maybe even just a, not even a quarter. I'm like literally thinking about both. Even what I had at L Brands, I could produce more. I I had like a little walk-in freeze. I mean, and it's fine. I don't mind it. I like doing small batches at a time. I mean, I wish we had to do bigger batches (laughs) because that would mean that we were selling more. Such a small fraction of what 
other bakeries are able to produce where maybe, yeah, you can look at that and be like, okay, but their croissant is bigger. I'm just using croissants because that's like what's coming to my mind or their whatever, their Danish or their cookies or whatever are bigger, but they're selling it for less. It's just a different formula that we have to use for our businesses to make a profit. People would probably argue baking is quote unquote, the easy part, right? So what's been the biggest challenge or the hardest part on the business side of things over the course of the first year? I mean, just trying to figure out how to turn a profit. <laughs> Honestly, the hustle of being creative of how can I boost revenue? How can I make money? What can I do to keep people engaged? How do I get people in the door? That's so hard. I often get a lot of people like, oh my God, your social media is great. You look like you're killing it, whatever. And it's like, social media does, is not reality. I would really like to do more than $250 in sales on a Wednesday, you know? <laughs> And that's not me complaining. It's just the reality. It's hard. It's it's a grind. At least now we're more consistent than we were, but it's a it's a constant brainstorm. Everything. And like, yes, keeping track of financials is tough, but also like if you use QuickBooks or something, like I can kind of keep that I can keep track of. It's okay, well, how do we get people in the door? And how do we get people to come back? I do think once people come in, they will come back because I I do have faith in our product and I think we make something good and unique and different. And I think people are curious about us. And it's just how to keep that going, how to keep any momentum we've built going is really hard. Is there anything you do differently looking back on the first year of being in a brick and mortar? Like that one thing that you're like, oh yeah, I probably would have had this installed or I would have done this or whatever. I would have done labor differently for sure. I mean, labor is always the most expensive part. I probably wouldn't have hired as many people just to see how it went first. That's the biggest thing I think I would have done differently is manage my labor differently. In terms of kind of your menu, you know, it changes. You guys constantly kind of roll out new stuff, I feel like. So where does your inspiration for the new creations come from? I mean, I know some of it's family heritage for you, but where else do you kind of decide like, oh, well, like I want to do that. Or like, what if I did these two flavors? Like, how do you come up with that process? We brainstorm a lot in the kitchen and I take their ideas seriously because I, number one, I know what it feels like to pitch ideas to just be like written off, even though you like believe that they might be good. So there's a lot of like spitballing, right? Like the most recent item that we kind of put on the menu is our peperonata galette. It used to be a sandwich. So it's saute. It's an Italian side dish. We I ate it a lot growing up. It's just sauteed peppers and onions, really. You cook them down for a long time, bring out the sweetness, and then I put it on baguette with some stone ground mustard and arugula. We stopped making it, but it was one of my employees' like absolute favorite things, that sandwich. So she was like, what if we turn it into, like bring it back, but in a different way. And so then I was like, okay, like, well, how does that look? You know, like, it was her idea to make like a cheese sauce. And I was like, what if we make it a mustard cheese? It was, it's like this back and forth of building on top of each other's ideas. In no way, shape or form are all of the items purely me. And some things are like the brie quince and apple hand pie. Like that was a flavor profile that I really love that I wanted to experiment with. But we all taste everything and we all have input. I value their opinions creatively. I want them to have fun at work. And some of the fun is like being able to have the freedom to be creative and throw ideas out there and see what happens. Do you ever have to stop yourself from trying to like perfect a recipe? Matt Hagen's, you know, he had a biscuit recipe and he spent like three years working on it. And he just finally had to be like, this is 9% of the way there. Like, this is, I got to stop kind of thing. Like, do you ever have to do that with anything? Like, 
It's funny. I talked to Carrie. I think Carrie mentioned this in her podcast. Um, but the amount that I just absolutely wing it. Carrie and I will be working together and we'll be like, we haven't tested this, but it's going to work. It's just having, and that only comes from years of experience of being able to know, like, I know that these flavors will work. I mean, never is what we put out my first iteration of anything, right? We definitely research, but I also know you can over fixate, like hyper fixate and overwork something. For me, I my formula is kind of like limit the flavor profile to like three flavors maximum and make sure that it's well balanced and you can taste everything and that it works well together. And once I feel like I've reached that, I just have to stop touching it because I could very much fall into like, this needs to be tweaked, this needs to be tweaked. But the reality is like, I kind of don't have the time to do that. You know, while I'm running the business, I'm also in there prepping every day. You know, we still have to get our normal prep done when we're doing. So it's like, I never put something out I'm not very happy with. Like everything I put out, very happy with. I'm always ecstatic to share it with people, but I have to limit myself into how many times we can test it. It's like two or three times and then that's, or we don't put it on the menu. You know, I've done that before too, where I've been like, oh, I don't like this at all. Um, We're not selling this. I think I'm very fortunate that I know for my, like when I need to stop myself. What's the one baked good you're most proud of like the staple of three bites like if somebody came in and could only get one thing like this is the thing they should get i'm very proud of the baklava morning bun that's like i mean i'm proud of everything but that was something where a friend of mine suggested like oh what if you did baklava but as a croissant i was like absolutely not (laughs) i was like i'm not doing that that sounds like a nightmare but then i did some research and i experimented with a different thing a couple different things and the ratios of the walnuts and the pistachios and i'm really happy with it You've done a handful of pop-up dinners and fundraisers, one with Raymond Kim, Carrie Young, uh, you did one too as well. Is there a lot of planning involved with those events or is it more of a, yeah, that sounds cool to collaborate. Let's do it. And we'll just kind of figure it out as we go. Mostly that. I mean, like I said, the, the one that we did over the summer, the summer dinner series was born out of necessity. Um, I just needed to make some extra money. I'm very fortunate that I have a group of friends that are just very talented chefs. You know, MJ from Bonifacio and Carrie and even Masha from Pechka Bakery, Uli from Tacos Rudos, Carrie, you know, my friend Wes, who I go to Muay Thai with, Bo, you know, at the time he was at Lawbird, now he's at Bagnino. People that like reached out and wanted to do these collaborations. It was like kind of an honor. I wanted to do it because I thought it would be fun <laughs> to do something out of my everyday Um, so pretty much what I would do is talk to each of the chefs individually and be like, you know, do you have a, what do you want to do? Cause I wanted to give them also the creative freedom where they could step out of what they do on the day to day and have some fun. So pretty much I'd be like, you come up with three dishes that you want to make and I'll finish it off with a dessert. And it was just like a fun collaborative pro. I love doing that so much, even though those dinners almost killed me doing eight in a row was tough on top of working, you know, five to three every day and just being a business owner in general, but I would still do it all over again. Laura Lee from Ajumama was another one. Incredible. Uh, she's been around for so long and she, I also go to Muay Thai with her and, um, she's also become like a mentor for me just in terms of running a small business food venture. Um, so being able to just work with these people that I really respect a lot was like a dream, you know, and it's something I want to continue to do. I just can't do it eight weeks in a row. 
Yeah, that's going to be my next question. Are you going to bring it back this summer, but like space it out like once a month or every other week or something? Or? Yeah, we actually just did one. Um, it was an all women's dinner and it was Masha from Pechka, Carrie, Hannah from Hissen, uh, Kitty's Kitchen, Kate from Kate Jupe from Heya Cake, Laura Lee from Ajumama. It was six of us. And it was so fun having six people to collaborate with and build a menu with. And I think I want to do it with them again, just because I feel like women chefs never get the credit that they deserve or the recognition that they deserve. I mean, it's just such a great experience. I think it might be something that I try to do quarterly for now, even monthly right now is kind of tough. Um, We're going to be doing the Clintonville farmer's market over the summer. So that's going to be pretty um, draining, I think, but definitely one at some point. I really enjoy doing them. And maybe this time I won't even do a dessert. I'll do like a savory dish. When you have all six of you guys, you know, working together, even though you guys all know each other, does somebody still have to take the lead somewhere in there? Like, is everybody just kind of deferring like, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And since somebody just has to eventually be like, well, this is kind of what we're doing. You know, we had a meeting. I was like, guys, we need to think of a menu. <laughs> I have a concept of, I guess I like quote unquote took the lead because it, it's my shop. It was my idea. And like, I got every, I'm the one that initiated the text group, I got everybody together and I just said, hey, I think it might be fun to do something based around like a fun tea party, kind of mad hatter, whimsical vibes. What does that mean? I don't know. Bright colors. <laughs> I was like, and, but that's how it started, right? Like that's how the conversation started. And then we just kind of went from there. Everyone has total freedom over their dish and we're all adults. I trust everybody to do right by the project. And we just stayed in contact and everyone just comes together to help each other out however we can. So when it comes to service, whoever's plating, we just help whoever plate and get the food out. And we just do whatever that person needs. There's no like that specific group of people. I mean, really everybody I worked with, even over the summer, like there was no clash of egos. Everybody's very humble, hardworking. It's just such a good group of people. I can't Everyone I worked with last year, as well as the group I just worked with, just like so good. Do you think the model that you followed, you know, starting out as an in-home operation for a couple of years, doing the monthly boxes, Masha Pechka is kind of in this model now. Do you think that can still be a successful one for aspiring bakers to follow? Or is there too many people doing that where it gets too crowded? So I think that there's less... There's less people doing it now than when I was doing it, I think, because I was doing it so much during lockdown when a lot of people didn't have anything else to do. So they were kind of starting like little pop-up bakeries. And since then, a lot of them have left or have stopped to do go back to work. So like a big thing for me is finding a way to kind of like give back to the baking community in the sense of it's so hard to go from baking in your home, making a jump to a brick and mortar or whatever, there's not really a lot of options for us without, you know, you want to go to maybe ECDI or Food Fort and spend a ton of money to rent space or whatever. So my goal when I opened the shop was that I want to make my space available to other home bakers who are looking to expand, but can't make that financial jump but they or what happened to me is happening to them where they've hit a threshold they're working way too many hours because they're working out of their home they don't have the space they don't have the equipment to do bulk i rent my space out 
to other bakers who are in that same position of this is not functional out of my home anymore. I don't have the capital to expand further. So I make my space available for a very cheap amount to just help other bakers if I can, because I know how hard it is. I currently have one baker working out of there. I'm going to have another one soon. It just makes me feel very good and very happy that like when the space isn't being utilized by me, other people who need it have access to it. I think that's so important to like build community and help each other. And like, I now have this thing that I wish I had had access to when I was expanding. So why not make it available to others? Would you say the the baking scene in Columbus, you know, we had a lot of people recently on from Cincinnati and there's a big baking scene down there. And they kind of all said everybody's kind of in their own lane. They all have almost like a specialty. There's some overlap with some of the stuff that they do. But for Columbus, is it a collaborative environment or is it everybody just kind of in their own corner, kind of doing their own thing? I think that the businesses that were kind of born out of the pandemic, like this like next generation, maybe if you want to phrase it that way, I think that we all have a really good collaborative relationship. There isn't really, as far as I know, bad blood. There isn't, I mean, but we all do things very differently, but we're all always welcome and open to collaborating and to working together and to building relationships with one another. It's a pretty cool community, actually. I mean, but none of us really have relationships with like the more established bakeries that have been around for a long time. I think that there's kind of like a different school of thought, probably. You're in a neighborhood that is, oh, let's just say it's primed for um, probably redevelopment in the next five years, uh, I would probably guess. Knowing that, you know, obviously you have a, a lease for your current space and everything. Knowing that that redevelopment is coming, you know, as you can kind of see it coming. And with that usually comes raising rent, raising prices, all that stuff. Do you think that you'll eventually move to a different location? Would you want to move to a different location down the road? Obviously, this is a future question, but, or do you think chances are, if I do have to move them, it's because I'm going to be forced out of here? I really don't know. It's something that I thought about at this point have a better relationship with my landlord than I did. Um, and I think that he would like us to stay there. think he's open to negotiations. Like we're much better off now than we were a year ago. We'll say. It's hard because it's like I have lived in and around this neighborhood for when did I move here? A long time, like six years now I've lived here and I love it. I'm very happy here and I love that my business that I live where my business is located. You know what I mean? So I can see like a direct impact, I guess. You know, those are things that I'm just going to have to cross that bridge when I get there. You know, a lot of people are like, oh my God, you'd make a killing if you were in Clintonville or if you were here, if you were in the short North or whatever. And it's like, yeah, but I like where I am. You know, there's a reason why I choose to live here. There's also such a need for something here. You know, it's not like we don't have a lot of bakery. I mean, Parable just started their bakery program, but for the longest time I was supplying their baked goods. So it's like, there's a void in this area. And, and even Parable, I wouldn't even consider to be like in this neighborhood. It's just a close, like downtown, like it's the closest. No, they're down, they're central business district downtown. But it's probably the closest bakery program to us, you know? So it's like, there's kind of a, a necessity. I view a necessity for us to exist here in this space. Yeah, because the only other thing that's relatively close would be the East Market. And I don't think there's a dedicated 
bakery in there. There's the guy who makes cheesecakes, but that's about it. Listen, the Bearded Baker's oatmeal cream pies are delicious. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and in terms of coffee shops, yes, we have Upper Cup and they have pastries available, but it's not like a full pastry program. So I feel like Three Bites can fill that space on the Near East side. You've been in the Columbus food scene for a while. You know, how has it changed since you've been involved? You know, where do you see it headed? Where do you think it needs to change? I would love to see less major restaurant groups opening businesses and more family-owned small business places. Um, I definitely think we could use more like cultural diversity within the city. I mean, if you go to Bethel Road, there's incredible restaurants out there that are from all over the world. But I think within like Columbus proper, I think that we could do with a more diverse food scene. I'd love it if, I mean, this is like something that I really encountered with the build out. It's like, not even that I'm looking for handouts necessarily. It's just that for a city that really touts and really brags about their small business support, there's not a lot of funding there to get people off the ground. It is not cheap to open a small business. And it stifles a lot of people being able to grow. I know that a lot of that does have to do with like COVID and so much of the funding did go towards like COVID recovery, but I would love to see like actual more support, more funding, more grants available to small businesses who just need help getting their doors open. The biggest thing is diversity in food for sure, I think is the biggest thing I'd love to see. I love seeing what like Avishar's doing. I think that's awesome. And I'd love to see more stuff like that. What's next for you professionally? I know you mentioned going to be doing one of the farmer's markets this year, bringing back some of the dinner series stuff, maybe once a quarter, but what else is on the horizon? Anything? This is in the very early workings, but Carrie and I have been talking about doing like industry brunch on Mondays, just because nothing is open on Mondays, including myself. <laughs> but I would love a place that offers like good brunch food on a Monday. Like that's my weekend, you know? So I think more creative things like that are in the horizon for me now that, you know, labor's kind of leveled out. Um, we're a little bit more consistent, a little bit more steady. I kind of have more bandwidth to think of things like that. Any opportunity I have to collaborate with anyone, I will take it. I love working with other people. I think that some of the coolest stuff comes out of working together, you know? So this next question comes from a previous guest on the podcast, Chef Kevin Cottrell, who's the executive chef co-owner at Machete in Greensboro, North Carolina. He left behind for you. What do you see as the next food trend, baking trend coming within the next five years? That's a good question. You know, I was just talking to somebody. I met with somebody from, his name's John. He runs a Long Beach Ube Festival in California. And he was just mentioning how many places there because like whatever, like rent is so high or whatever. It's just so many more pop-ups. I think that we're going to see a growth in like pop-ups, food trucks. I mean, I think food trucks have always been popular, but I think trying to find more creative ways to get your name out there in the way of, of that, I think we'll be seeing a lot more of that because I mean, rent is just going up. Inflation is crazy. People need to get creative about how to share their food. I think we'll see a lot more of that. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? I guess, what do you think is the most important conversation that we need to have right now as an industry? Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, what is the quote unquote proper 
or best way to ice a cake? I think, I mean, for me, I have worked out a system of measurements with like um, different colored scoops, you know, like a purple scoop or a blue scoop or whatever, based on what size cake I have. That's based on my own personal ratio of buttercream to cake. Um, so I know if I have a filling, the filling needs X amount of scoops and the, I need X amount of scoops of buttercream. It's not just like plopping stuff on. That's to me, that's how I get the most even layers. That's how I get the ratio that I like. Personally, I am not the biggest fan of buttercream. So I think that the best way to ice a cake is like semi-naked or naked with like as little buttercream as you could possibly get on there. When doing it like technique wise, should you start with the top or the sides first? Does it matter? It doesn't really matter. Everyone kind of does it a different way. What I like to do is I'll like build my cake layers and then I take a piping bag and just very lightly go along the outside. So I'm not pushing down. You know how like some people put it on the top and then they like- You gotta like put, yeah, pull it or push it to the sides and stuff, yeah. Or they build it up or whatever. So I like to use a piping bag just because I think it causes like less trauma to the cake. And then that's how I go about it. So this last set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, so nice compare contrast for everybody who's listening. So who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking or baking career thus far when you look back on it? My dad, 100%, my father, yeah. He still comes in and gives me critiques all the time. He has so many ideas and suggestions, you know. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Bench scraper. Restaurant or bakery that you'd recommend that isn't your own? The scenario I usually give, you know, person gets trapped at the airport, stuck overnight or whatever. Where should you, they reach out to you guys and, and your guys are closed, but they're like, hey, where should we go? And you kind of point them in this direction. Unfortunately, all these places are also closed Mondays, but Bonifacio and Coso. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurants, a place you have not visited, but you still want to travel to one day. And then also a restaurant you have not eaten at yet, but you still want to get to. Um, I'd love to go to Portugal um, and Spain. And I really want to go to Agni. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant or bakery while you're working? A lady tried to fight me in my own shop. Over what? I asked. It, it's a lot. She like robbed us. Then she came back the next day wearing a burqa, trying to sell the items that she stole from us. Then I, it was a whole long story. She came back like three days in a row. She was wearing a disguise. Then she was asking me for food. I was like, you stole from us. You can't be here. And she didn't like that. And then she tried to fight me. So that might be the craziest thing that's ever happened that I've ever seen while I was working. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that you know is unhealthy uh, for you, but you just can't help yourself uh wendy's also ice cream also potato chips what is the one cookbook everyone should own you know whether they're a professional chef or at-home chef at-home baker they should have this somewhere in their home on their shelf easy salt fat acid heat favorite dish thing you ever cooked created baked uh you know kind of looking back over your career you can point to this almost as like your aha moment like you knew you could be a professional baker you know open your own place one day I don't think I have one. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. Uh, if you were, is there a moment episode scene uh, that always stands out to you about him? If you weren't, is there another culinary personality who's on TV, uh, Emerald, Julia Child, whoever, um, that you always kind of gravitated towards when you were kind of coming up through your career? I mean, I really have, I loved what Anthony Bourdain did. I know that a lot of people don't like him. I can't even remember the all of his episodes have kind of like blended together for me, you know, but 
I loved watching the places he went. I loved watching the places he traveled, the food he got to eat. Was I found his shows to be pretty inspiring. But I can't think of like one specific scene. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Yeah. So Instagram um, is where I do all of my announcements for things. If you really want like real-time updates, Instagram is the best place to catch me. Um, it's just at Three Bites Bakery. The word three is spelled out. It's not the number. Facebook is also Three Bites Bakery, or I mean, facebook.com slash Three Bites Bakery. That is just connected to my Instagram. That's like not as exciting. Uh, website, threebitesbakery.com. You can order for same day pickup or delivery through Chow Now. And you can also place orders ahead of time, like through our website directly. And you guys are open Wednesday through Sunday, eight to two. And then if anybody wants to do some sort of uh, ordering in bulk for an event or something that they have, reach out to you through the website or Instagram or? Do, we do catering events. We need like a minimum of 30 people, but we have different tiers of, you know, depending on what your budget is. We do wedding cakes as well. We do custom birthday cakes. Um, we have menus up for all of that. Awesome. Yeah, we've had the pleasure of having a, a handful of your guys' items. I can't remember exactly everything off the top. I might have to go back and look. But I remember we got like a, a slice or two. Of, I think you had different cakes at the time. And I know I, the one that I got, like I forgot about it. And it was in the fridge for like an extra like day or two. Still tasted great. It was just cold. Like it wasn't stale. It wasn't mushy or anything like that. It still, it looked like I just pulled it out of like your pastry case, but it was just cold. They do hold up for multiple days if need be, if you accidentally forget about that it's in the fridge like I did. You know, super unique flavors, uh, different combinations, but still approachable. I mean, you know, I got like a banana bread thing, but there was something else with it. I can't remember that was mixed into it, but yeah, which, so it's like, oh, okay, it's banana bread and this other thing. Like, you know, the flavors, but I think in your mind, you don't know exactly how they're going to taste. And that's kind of the intriguing part where you're like, all right, might not have put these two things together myself but I'm not scared of either of these flavors either. So like, let's see what this is kind of thing. Yeah, it's all delicious stuff. And we don't have a whole lot of bakeries here uh, in Columbus currently, and there's just a handful. It's always great to see somebody kind of open their own place and, and be able to be successful with it and continue. So I'm sure we'll be seeing you soon, um, you know, stopping in and grabbing some baked goods uh, whenever we get the chance. Whenever you want, except Mondays and Tuesdays. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. A big thanks again to Issa from taking some time out of her day to jump on the podcast and jump on Zoom and talk about her career and everything she's gone through, kind of where she thinks everything's headed for her in Three Bites Bakery. So again, if you haven't tried their stuff, they're located just off of downtown, just north of the East Market. They're not too far away from, I think it's like those three fives of apartment towers. Um, they're kind of in that area. So there's not much going on in that area. They're kind of one of the few things uh, that is there. They're open during the week and on the weekends. They always have different pastries and different baked goods. They do sandwiches for lunch too as well, some salads. They have one-off dinners that they're doing with different chefs and partner with different people. So they always have a lot going on. So you want to make sure you follow their Instagram at 3 Bites Bakery. That'll get you all the news and updates and everything. Check out their website. And then you could also reach out if you want to do some catering or wedding cake or whatever. Make sure to reach out to them directly if that's something that you're interested in too as well, either through their website or through the Instagram account of theirs. Follow us on Instagram too as well at SpoonMob. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com. And then make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. That is it for this week. I appreciate everybody who's been listening. Appreciate everybody who's continuing to help spread the word. We had a great time in Nashville. 
got to see some old familiar faces. I got to see some new faces too as well. So we'll be posting stuff about that trip. It was a nice little break from just everything that was going on. So now we're back in kind of full swing. So new episodes will drop on Thursdays every week. Appreciate everybody's continued support. If you have been here for a while, thank you. If you're new, welcome. Continue to help spread the word. Whenever you wind up at a business that we featured on the podcast, make sure to tell them that you heard their episode that they did with the Spoon Mob podcast. Um, Let them know that you've heard it and you're there to support them. And and that way they know that it was worth their time to come on and and they got a partner in us too as well. So we've had a bunch of repeat guests, always looking to kind of keep everybody up to date with what's going on as careers advance and change and whatnot too. So been a lot of fun thus far and looking forward to the episodes that we got coming out here in the next few weeks too as well but that is it for this week 